All right, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read to you uh, again the first seven verses, which is what we did last week. Uh, And then we're going to jump into verse 8 onwards this morning. So we were looking at this um, continuation, really, uh, that Peter has started um, comparing the way that we have to be or should be towards governments, those in authority, those uh, who are uh, over us in terms of being a boss or employer, that kind of thing. Speaking of the way we should submit, and it's for the glory of God. It's not necessarily because they deserve it. Uh, it's for the glory of God. It's for his purpose and so that his name will be uh, exalted. And so let's just read those first verses that we looked at last week of First Peter 3. It says, Likewise, you wives, be subject um to your own husbands that if any obey not the word if any husbands obey not the word they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of their wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel but let it be the hidden man of the heart, the hidden person, a man, mankind is what it's referring to, the hidden person of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, not not the outward things that can kind of perish, make up, and all the other things that people try to do to make themselves look good and so on. Yeah, that, that's not saying don't do those things, it's saying let's focus on the inward. Uh, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner... In the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. And we're now given this example of Sarah. It says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So we have six verses of instruction given to the ladies. And obviously we went through in detail looking at this last week. Um, just looking at this pattern that God has set, looking at the reasons, making it very clear this has nothing to do with importance. It's not saying in any way that women are more important than men or men are any important, more important than women. Now, there is no distinction. We're told very clearly in the New Testament that in Christ Jesus, we are all one. That's male and female, bond and free. So those are employers, those are employees. You know, whatever the situation, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you know, we're all one in Christ. There, There is no hierarchy in that sense. But God does have an order. And for the sake of um, the way things are within his church, he's told us that we have, have this order in place. And these are some instructions, therefore, we give him. Now, as you said, six verses for the for the ladies. You can handle a lot. Men can only just handle a little little bit. So uh, we just get one verse for the men, which is verse seven. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Just a couple of things to mention again. We looked at this last week. When it says that speaks of the wife as the weaker vessel, it's not implying in any way inferiority. It's speaking of something that should be lifted up and treasured and protected. It has the implication in the Greek of something like a vase that you would lift and put in a place of honour. And that's exactly what men should be doing uh, to their wives. And notice very clearly it says in the next line, being heirs together. So that there, there's clearly there is no distinction. We are joint heirs. We are equally entitled to all that God has given us. Um, you know, I've often commented on that verse, the opening verse in First uh, John chapter 3. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, 
Unfortunately, because of the world we live in, everybody likes to try and be politically correct. A lot of the new versions of the Bible will translate that. We have been called the children of God. Okay, rather than sons of God, because they say, well, sons is a little bit too, you know, um, male and we want to try and make it broader so everybody's included. And of course, in doing that, they totally destroy the meaning of what was actually being written there by John. You see, at the time, and John knows what he's writing, the sons, typically the firstborn son, would be the one who would receive the inheritance. And so John is saying to all of us, whether we're male or female, think about the the love that God has poured upon us, that you and I, whether you're male, whether we're male or female, get to be in the position of the firstborn son. We all get that place of inheritance. So that's why that word is used. It's not just an accident. It's not a... Uh, a discriminatory kind of comment. It's not male chauvinism or anything that the world would try and maybe throw at us. In fact, the Bible is so fair, so equal. Uh, and it's actually the world with its kind of stupid ideas that actually brings in these kind of distinctions that are not found in the Bible. So with that, let's jump into uh, the study this morning and pick up from where we uh, left off last week. So this is now picking up from uh, verse 18. Let me just remind, oh sorry, verse 8 through to 18. Let's just remind you that we're in this section and we've seen already that Christian conduct in the light of the hope that we have. Peter speaks a lot about our hope, what we should be looking forward to and why it should change the way we live. All right, that verse from Proverbs 29, verse 18, I've quoted many a time. If um, it just speaks of the fact that if we cast off restraint, um, or sorry, if we have no vision, people will cast off restraint. And it's saying, unless you've got something to aim at, unless you've got something ahead of you, you, you get very sloppy. You, you know, it, it, somebody who's running is running toward a, a goal. Maybe it's a, a distance they're trying to complete. Uh, maybe they're running in a race and they're, they're looking for the finish line. You know, when you're running, you've got to have something ahead of you. Otherwise, it just becomes very aimless. You know, this is what it's saying with the Christian life. We've got to have that aim. We've got to have that goal. We've got to have something ahead of us that we're looking forward to, which, of course, is the return of Jesus at that time when Jesus comes to take us to be with him. Now, in light of the hope that we have and all the inheritance, all the things we've spoken about recently in our studies through Hebrews and James and so on, it should impact the way we live. So that's the opening section. We've gone through it already. We're now in this section looking at the believer's life. Right, it's so, so important. This is the way uh, the believers live. And again, in the light of this sevenfold position that we've mentioned now, this is the fact that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a called out people. We're to show forth the praises of him. We've been called out of darkness and we've been called into his marvelous light. Every single one of those will be a good enough reason for us to say, you know what, I'm going to live my life differently because of what God has done. When we put all seven together, Peter's saying, come on, look, think about this. Well, think what God has done for you. How can you live in the way that you used to live? We need to be living for Jesus Christ now, particularly as um, Paul reminds us, because the days are evil. He says we should be redeeming the time, making the best use of the time that we have left. So um, we're in this that section at the moment. That's that's where we are. And the last section, uh, when we get into chapter five, if uh, the Lord tarries and we get there, uh, it's really, again, regarding to Christian service in the light of the coming chief shepherd. The reality that Jesus really is going to be coming back and coming back soon. And anybody that questions that only needs to look around at the world, see what state the world's in, see what's going on around the world, look at what the Bible says, and they kind of start to marry up really kind of quite incredibly. 
The Bible speaks about earthquakes and famines uh, and pestilences. Uh, you know, we, 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 we're seeing all of these things, and of course, of wars. Um, you know, there's never been a time, you know, that we see so many wars going on around the world uh, within nations and so on, civil wars and nation warring against nation. All these kind of conflicts uh, and a time when pestilence has never been quite the, the problem that we're experiencing now with, with COVID-19 and things like that. So the Bible spoke about this stuff 2000 years ago when it was recorded and we are now living in these days. Uh, again, you're going to need to look at Israel to see a great barometer for the, the times that we're living in. That We know already that the Russians are putting forces up on the Golan Heights. Uh, really interesting. Um, the Bible speaks in Ezekiel 38 about a time when Russia, uh, with the surrounding uh, Islamic-led nations, will launch an attack on Israel. And we are on the brink of that right now. That can happen. That could be this week. We don't know. Um, but it's so, so close. Uh, now, I think from reading scripture, that will be an event that will occur before the rapture of the church. There's nothing specifically stated. There's a few telltale signs, I think, that give an indication that may be the case. Either way, we are really close. Uh, and Jesus, of course, said that when we begin to see these things, we should lift up our heads. So we're living at a time that is unlike any other time in history. Chuck Misler used to say that, you know, the time we're living in, uh, you know, the Bible speaks more about it than it does the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. And he says that's a preposterous statement. He said, you know, it challenges you to go and check it out. But if you look at the Bible, you'll realize it's true. You know, there's um, eight times more prophecies regarding the second coming of Jesus than there were regarding the first coming. You know, so we're really living in very interesting times. And of course, all of these things, this is what Peter's trying to get across to us, should shape the way we live our lives. Okay, so building on Peter's previous admonitions regarding submission to the government, to employers. Again, it highlights even unjust employers. Peter then turns his attention to the marriage, which we saw last week, and then to our relationships with each other and how they should be different from the world around us. So this is something that Peter is going to make very, very clear now, that just as we should submit to the government, just as we should submit to employees, just as within a relationship, there should be that submission one to the other. Uh, there should be this um, understanding of each other's roles and the distinctions that God has put there. Peter's going to go on and say, actually, also, we're to have this same love and respect for each other, uh, and particularly in the light of the world we live. So he starts let me pick up verse 8. Finally, he says. Now, I need to just qualify this because uh, you'll find that Paul will use this a number of times. Uh, and typically, you know, preachers will often use this finally. And normally it's the indication that we're now halfway through. Um, but it's not actually what the word means. In, in the Greek, it has kind of the idea of following on from and yet introducing a new section. So in the English, finally means this is the last thing I'm going to say. That's not quite what it means, this, this word in the Greek. It has this implication of, okay, I'm now going to change it. I'm going to say something different, but I'm following on from what I was saying. And so he says, finally, be you all. Now, again, let's put the all into to context. He's speaking to Christians, speaking to believers. So he's saying, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as someone who is part of the church, he says, be you all of one mind. 
You know, I really love this. And before we kind of go on looking at the rest of what Peter says, it's really important to understand as Christians, we're not to be, or we shouldn't be, divided. Now, of course, we know the history of the Christian church. We see so much division. We see so many splits and rifts and all sorts of things going on. But, you know, at the beginning of First Corinthians, Paul says there, Now I beseech you, brethren, I beg you, I plead with you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, there's going to be differences in terms of our preferences. Some people like a particular style of worship and others another, and that's fine. You know, some people, you know, like to be part of a large church. Some people like to be part of a smaller congregation. Again, nothing wrong with either of those kind of things. But in terms of doctrine, in terms of our understanding of scripture, we should be on the same page. We, we should have the same understanding. We should be following the apostles' doctrine. Okay, so these were things that Jesus spoke about that were amplified by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament. It's very clear. Unfortunately, we have become victim to many, often well-meaning people through Scripture that have introduced their own, or not through Scripture, through history, that have introduced their own ideas. And sadly, because people have not gone back to Scripture, people have gone off on tangents. And as often happens, others will then follow. So this is a call for us, not just to be of the same mind, but actually to make sure that we're on the same page scripturally, that we should be looking at scripture together. I challenge anybody to read scripture with an open mind and come to a vastly different view or understanding than the majority of the church has done through history. You know, the incredible thing is that if you read scripture the Holy Spirit will interpret and help you to understand. There is not lots of different interpretations. There's not lots of different understandings of these things. Many years ago, I used to play in a band. And we were looking for a singer at one point. We were auditioning. We were a Christian band and we wanted a Christian singer. Um, and so we set up some auditions. We were up in London. and We had a load of different people turn up for, for this particular role. At the time, the, the, the band were, were signed up. We had a, a three-album deal pending, and it was all kind of quite exciting at the time. And, and so we had lots of people coming, wanting this kind of opportunity to come and sing and things. And my uh, friend, uh, the guitarist, was doing the kind of musical checks, uh, making sure they could actually sing, um, rather than me. My, my, my ability on that uh, level was not so, so good, so I kind of let him do the musical checks. And I was doing the spiritual stuff, so I was doing a little interview with them on a spiritual basis, just trying to find out what page they were on what they understood where they believed now there were some that clearly uh had no understanding of the bible or god or anything they just thought they'd be great great fun to sing in a band but you know the ones i did meet that were genuinely born again that had read the bible there was this wonderful unity you know and some of them we didn't take on that we, we did actually take on one particular individual um but the, the incredible thing was that you could meet somebody, and you know this, I'm sure, yourself. You could meet another believer who comes from a totally different situation, different background, maybe a different type of church or whatever else, different denomination. And if scripture is the key, if scripture is the basis, there's this wonderful unity. 
And you don't have to sit there, you know, discussing and debating this doctrine and that doctrine. There may be a few different ideas on some of the things, and that's okay. But the core doctrines, they should all be the same. And, you know, it, it, it is a, a, a shame when Christians are not willing to discuss the Word of God. And I always think that's a, a really interesting test. If anybody ever disagrees on a portion of Scripture, they're not, if they're not willing to come to the Bible and look at it, it just tells me that they're going with their own opinion. They're not really bothered about what the Bible says. They, they want to hold on to their own particular thing. You know, we should all be humble enough to always be willing to learn. We should be teachable. That's exactly what and we're told, Paul says to Titus, that we should be teachable. You know, a servant of the Lord must be apt to teach, must be teachable. It's really what it means in the Greek. Okay, so we should be willing, we should be able to learn, and we should be able to come to this same understanding. And proof of this, as I say, is when you meet another believer and you're absolutely on the same page, even, without even sitting and doing a Bible study together, you can talk about something. Yeah, that's exactly what, yeah, I love that, you know, and I understand. So, okay, let's let's move on. So, finally, be of one mind is Peter's admonition, And then he says, building off that, having compassion one of another. This is how we're to be as Christians. Now, remember, this is building on what we've seen, uh, this kind of submission to the government, to authorities within marriage. And now he's saying we should have this compassion for each other, not thinking of each other more or ourselves more highly than we ought, is what Paul tells us. We're to love as if we were brothers. Now, I'm very blessed that I have a brother. I have a brother and a sister. Um, but, you know, there is a, a lovely thing, that brotherly love. Uh, and we're to love as brothers. We're to have that bond together. You know, and you know, just do anything for each other. Just be pitiful and be courteous. It doesn't say be abrasive and be rude. It doesn't say look out for your own end. And yet so often I've seen within churches over the years, and I've met individuals who actually, quite frankly, can be very rude, can, can speak without thinking about how their words may be taken by somebody else. You know, that's not how we should be. We should speak in gentleness and speak peaceably. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It should be overflowing in our lives. Now, Peter's going to go on and list five qualities um, that we should all uh, be and have as these believers that are growing in grace, getting ready for the return of the Lord and so on. All right, now, let's just go through. The first one is, we've just seen here already, um, it's being like-minded, it's having a harmony. These are the, the, the first of the five. Uh, the second one is having this compassion. It's being sympathetic is literally what it means in the Greek. Uh, the next one is, as we've just said, loves brothers. And then the last two, compassionate, tender-hearted, and then finally, being humble. Five distinct qualities that we should have as believers, Okay. Now, he goes on and says that we should be not rendering evil for evil. So if somebody does you wrong, you shouldn't be looking to get back at them or get even. And it says, nor railing for railing. Somebody says something to you, and of course the typical childish response is to say something back. Somebody calls you a name, you call them a name back. Well, that kind of thing should never exist within the Christian church. That should never be the way we are. And it says, but contrawise, and this is in, in opposition to that, it should be blessing. You know, if somebody does say something to you that's not kind, that's not nice, uh, that's not helpful, that's not considerate, that's not sympathetic or any of those things we just mentioned, we should return blessing. It says knowing that you are there unto called. All right. We've been called to this. This isn't just a, an optional elective. This is this is something that we should actually be 
understanding that is part of our calling that this is how we are called to live and notice as well that you should inherit a blessing let me make it very clear the blessings that are spoken of in the new testament in regard to inheritance are not guaranteed okay salvation is guaranteed but our inheritance the blessings that are spoken about in scripture the rewards well we can forfeit those things in um uh first uh sorry i think it's uh, second john or third john i forget which one uh we're told that we should be careful so that we receive a full reward all right now that that gives us very clear implication that we might not um paul tells us that we should run the race so as to win and gives the implication that we could run the race so that we don't win and we don't inherit there are many many verses in the new testament that make it clear that we could lose out on blessings and probably one of the clearest is in first corinthians 3 when it speaks about that time that we arrive before the beam of seat the judgment seat of christ at the time of the rapture we're going to be caught up to heaven and before the throne there's going to be this uh award ceremony based upon how we've lived as Christians. And we're told that if we've built with, with the things of this world, with the wood, hay and the straw, those things just get burnt up. And we have nothing. You know, we lose even what we thought we did have. But if we build with gold, silver, precious stones, when those things go through fire, they're purified. Many, many verses in the New Testament speak about rewards and inheritance. And Peter here just alludes to it again. You know, He's telling us that we should live this way so that we make sure that we do inherit the blessing that is there. So again, there is no room for revenge. In fact, Scripture is very clear. Uh, in Romans 12, um, uh, Leviticus 19, Proverbs 24, you can see the references there. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We need to understand that God will put the record straight. God is a just God. God is in charge and we need to trust him and leave it to him. And Jesus also taught that we should refrain from retaliation in Matthew 5.39. So, you know, as believers particularly, this should be a characteristic of us, the way that we naturally are in Christ. You know, we're to seek peace by returning a blessing if we receive an insult. And Jesus, of course, said in Matthew 5.44 that we should pray for those who persecute you. And Paul wrote that when we are cursed, we bless, 1 Corinthians 4.12. And Peter now is going to turn to Psalm 34. Peter had a great understanding of the Old Testament and quotes a lot uh, from different portions. But this piece now uh, is this uh, part of Psalm 34, verse 12 to 16. But you're going to notice that Peter stops deliberately partway through the sentence. So we'll come to that in a second. He says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and eschew it, or literally to pursue it, to go after it, to go after peace, chase it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, this is really quite interesting because part of the quote is redacted. Peter doesn't give us the entire quote from Psalm 34. Let me read the whole thing from Psalm 34. It says, what man is he that dislikes life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The, for, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, that is where Peter stops, okay? Because he doesn't read that last verse for us to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. 
So why is it Peter doesn't give us the quote in full? I mean, clearly it's not because he didn't remember it. He knows enough of scripture. So he purposely leaves off that last line to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Well, why does he do that? Well, it's because this last element is not going to be in this age. All right. This is what Peter's going to allude to here. You know, and it's parallel, interestingly enough, to something that Jesus read which we read about in Luke chapter 4, uh, when Jesus was in the synagogue and he picked up the scroll to read from Isaiah, and actually the portion he reads, you and I refer to as Isaiah 61. Remember, of course, the chapter and verse breaks weren't in the original text, but um, that's the portion that Jesus read from. And of course, there too, Jesus stopped short of the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, so it's interesting that Peter does exactly what Jesus did and doesn't quote the entirety of the portion because the last part has to do with something that is yet to come and it speaks of God's ultimate judgment on these things. Let me read this portion from Luke just so we get it in context. So this is in Luke chapter 4 verse 16 and Jesus is speaking of came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now this is the quote from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, now let's just look at the portion from Isaiah 61. And if you notice there, there's a comma. Okay, Jesus just stops at that point. He makes it a full stop because he doesn't read and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, the reason partly for this is, of course, that when Jesus came the first time, he did come as he was anointed to preach good tidings to the meek. He was been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound. He came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that now is the time for salvation. But he hadn't come at that point to declare the day of vengeance of our God. That is yet to come. Now, it's very interesting, because as we go through Scripture, we'll see this. We'll come back to the uh, other occurrences of this in a minute. I'll mention it. But we read back in Luke 4, that he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And notice what the reaction was. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So the first part that he read, he's saying now it's being fulfilled. But he couldn't have said that if he'd have read the last part. And notice everybody's like, you didn't finish the sentence. You didn't finish the quote. Why didn't you finish reading it? Well, because Jesus says, what I've just read is now being fulfilled. The bit that he didn't read is not yet to be fulfilled. Now, it's quite provocative when you look in Scripture, and I'm indebted again to Chuck Misler for this bit of research, that there's 24 occasions when this happens. 24 times when we have what is referred to, or could be referred to, as a dispensational gap. So that we have the first part of the quote, which deals with up to now, up to the church age, if you like. And then there's a gap. And that the last part of the quote deals with that which is yet to come, the time of judgment. And you can see all of those. By all means, track them down, read through them at your leisure, and and study this a bit deeper if you want to do so. It's interesting that we have a total of 24 of these gaps, these dispensational gaps, 
which cover the church age in scripture. Now, why is the number 24 interesting? Well, the number 24 appears two other places in scripture. We have 24 elders in the book of Revelation, which clearly represent the church. And so both the suggesting 24 is the number that symbolizes the church. And there's also we find that in the Old Testament, the, the priesthood under David was divided into 24 groups or 24 courses, again, symbolizing the whole of the priesthood. Now, Peter's already made the point that we're a royal priesthood. It's just interesting that this 24, which seems to be emblematic of or emblematic of the church age, is the number of times we have this gap in a sense, where a sentence is, is paused before being fulfilled, uh, effectively. So I'll just share with you, I think it's just very interesting. Uh, and we are right in that period now. Peter, of course, in this quote, doesn't go on to the last part. Because again, that's yet to be fulfilled. <clears throat> Verse 13 carries on. But it says, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, in reality, there are people that might try and harm us if we do things that are good. But truthfully, as Jesus said, you know, what can they do? What can man do unto you? Your hand is in, your life is in God's hand. Your eternity is secure. You know, what can man do unto me? Nothing is the answer. I mean, yes, they could throw insults. They may even hurt us or abuse us physically. And that happens, of course, with many Christians around the world that are suffering persecution. But that's just the body. You know, in terms of our soul, the real us, they can't actually harm us. They can't get to that part of us that is protected by God's hand. You know, no matter how evil men seek to endure believers, there can no evil befall the righteous that is not Father filtered. God filters everything. And of course, it includes persecution, sickness, financial distress. And again, we mentioned earlier, God uses those to sanctify us and to bring us close to him, to get us to look to him. But actually, nothing can really harm us as the real person, the real who we are, our soul. That, that is protected. It's, it's secure in God's hands. Interestingly, then, Peter's going to say a, another statement here, which he's going to come back to in a minute. But in verse 14, he says, But, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, you know what? You should be happy. You know, if you're suffering because you're a believer... It's just suffering because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and people ridicule you or whatever else. Or uh, even if you are persecuted, you know, you should be happy. And he says, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You know, only he who can say the Lord is the strength of my life can then go on and say, of whom shall I be afraid? You know, it kind of links in very beautifully with the verse for the week. Uh, this does as well. You know, he who walked with them in the fiery furnace and stopped the mouths of lions also keeps his watchful eye upon his saints. You know, and you think of that situation uh, back in the book of Daniel with Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael. And you probably learnt by now that I um, much prefer people to use their proper names because everybody speaks to them of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're the names that were given to them to glorify the Babylonian gods, which were really no gods at all. But the real names were God-glorifying names. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, who spoke of God, the God of uh, Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three individuals, they're called to bow down and worship this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They refuse to do so. 
And eventually, as you know, the account, they're thrown into this fiery furnace. And by the way, they found evidence of this, the, the real location. They found evidence of this fire that would have been used, this great furnace uh, that could have been used. This is in the, the plains of Shinar, just outside of Baghdad, uh, in the area of Babylon itself on the banks of the river Euphrates. Um, you know, these are historical accounts of things that really took place. Well, um, of course, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this great big, huge statue, about 90 feet tall, about nine feet wide, kind of makes the whole thing of gold and must be glistening in the sun uh, on the, uh, the, the, the Iraqi plains there uh, by Babylon. You know, everybody was told to bow down and worship. But these three Hebrew men think, well, we're not going to worship. That's not a god. We're going to worship that. And, of course, they're given the opportunity because they were trusted advisors to the king at this point. And so the king doesn't really want to do it. But he says, well, unless you, unless you bow down, you're going to go in the furnace. And, of course, they don't. And so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, you know, in any of us in that situation, there would be that element of terror, as the verse says, with be not afraid of their terror. Well, of course, the Babylonians, the Nebuchadnezzar and so on, they meant it to be a, a horrible ordeal for them. So others would learn from their mistake. Well, what happens we find that God is there in the midst of the furnace with them, that they don't burn, that their, their hair is not singed, there's no smell of smoke on them. I love the statement of faith, though. You know, that God is able to deliver us from these flames. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down, you know, because nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. And of course, we can add, because we now know the full picture, the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know, nothing can separate us from God's love. So we don't need to be afraid of the things the world will say or do, particularly, again, if we're suffering because of the fact that we are righteous, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And let's not worry about that. Let's not be afraid of that. There's a, a child um, once that had said to a parent, you know, is it true that God is always watching me? And the parent said, yeah, he said he loves us so much he can't take his, take his eyes off us. And I love that response. That's exactly how God is. God won't ever let us out of his sight. You know, yesterday we had the opportunity to go down to Deal to see family, uh, of course, socially distanced in a park uh, and uh, so on. But it was really nice to see them. At one point, uh, Amita and Connie decided they're going to go off and play uh, on their skateboards and roller skates in a path. And it was kind of a few hundred yards from where we were, but clearly could see them. You know, but I kept my eye on them. You know, I, I just wanted to make sure they were safe the whole time. You know, well, that's what God does with us. He always keeps his eye on even if he takes his eyes off us. Then we get to this verse, a really key and important verse. There's so many great verses in the New Testament. I love this. And then it says, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. You know, God is not like anything else in your life. God is greater and better than everything else that's in your life, that surrounds your life, that fills your life. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always. Not some of the time, not when, you know, you've had a, an opportunity to sit there studying the word for a little while, but be ready always. You know, whenever you weren't expecting it, you should always be ready anyway. To give an answer, notice, to every man that asks you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's a lot in this verse because it's telling us, first of all, that we should have an answer. And the answer that should be ready to be able to give to somebody that observes in our life that we have hope. That there should be something tangible about us as believers that somebody should look on and see, actually, you have a real hope. During the, 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 this pandemic we've just gone through, I hope that people are going to look at you as a Christian and see that you don't have fear. I was uh, speaking to my mum yesterday and she was just relaying to me the account of an old lady she knows uh, in uh, Deal 
who mum was just speaking to her saying are you okay and she said yeah i'm fine and she's you know she obviously talked about how how she's coping with lockdown and everything else and, and so on uh and this lady said you know she said, i'm not at all afraid and she said, i'm not being being foolish i'm not doing anything silly you know uh, and obviously i'm keeping with the government guidelines and so on what we've been told to do she said but i don't care she said because i'm not going to go until the lord wants to take me she said i just trust god you know, my, my life won't end until god's ready and I thought, what a lovely, simple, childlike faith. You know, we should have that hope in the Lord, that he is the one that is in control of our lives. And we should be able to trust him, that all things work together for good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Do we really believe it? Or do we think that some things, you know, God is in control of, that some things are covered and we have to make sure we, we sort the rest out? Well, let's hope it's not that way because we're not going to do a very good job. So there should be that hope. Others should see it. Again, we should be able to respond to people then when they see that hope and they want to talk to us about it. And we should show it with meekness and fear. Not out of position of arrogance, not out of a position of, well, I'm okay and I don't have to worry. No, we should show meekness and fear. We should remember that we were once like those in the world who don't yet know Jesus. And we were confused. We didn't understand. And probably for many of us, Christianity seemed a strange thing. And trying to understand why Christians were like they were. It can be quite offensive when you meet somebody who seems so sure and so secure. And so we're given this really clear instruction that we're actually to, to show this hope. But it's got to be done with meekness. Not, not with arrogance. It's got to be done in fear. And there needs to be this kind of understanding that, that God loved the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, we need to realize that people that may be antagonistic toward the gospel and towards us because of our faith, we need to still show them this meekness and fear also. Now, I'm going to come back to this statement in a minute because I want to just close out this morning uh, with something I used uh, in the school of ministry a year or two ago. Uh, we did a, a class, a, a kind of a, a 30 week class on apologetics, just going through these things. And I'll just come back and make some comments in a minute. Um, you know, but our hearts have got to be separated unto him. And again, it's our most important preemptive stewardship. Really, the, the life that we express to other people will firstly come from the life that we live before God. They will see in us a genuineness if that genuineness is really there and if our relationship with God is right. We, we can't manufacture that. That's got to be there. And so that opening statement, sanctify the Lord God, is really where it all starts. He's got to be preeminent and number one in our life. But then again, this word, we're going to come on to this in a second, This uh, where we get apologetics from, that we've got to be ready to give every man an answer or literally a defense of what we believe. All right having a good conscience we're told that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in christ so we're told we should have all these this this, this uh, outward expression this joy that other people will see be ready to give this answer when we're we're asked the, the, why we have this hope again having a good conscience not doing anything that needs to be censored not worried about what people may dig up about us you know our, our old life was our old life but once we become christians everything's reset you know, and that we should be clear in our conscience. There shouldn't be something that we're afraid somebody might find out. And if they do speak evil of us, well, they'll soon be um, shown to be false in their accusations against us because of our good conversation, our lifestyle. Our lifestyle should be such that people can't say, well, I'm surprised you do that as a Christian or I didn't think Christians did that. Well, that should never be said of us. 
You know, and the best defence and witness against slander is simply to be innocent. It really is the simplest way. You know, and Peter may have been alluding to the occasion when he de- denied Christ out of fear in words that were neither gentle nor respectful, if you remember that occasion uh, when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane and Jesus followed John down to the courtyard of the high priest and so on. And then the last verse we're going to look at this morning, and then we're just going to just tail off with this bit on apologetics I want to share with you. But we're told, Peter says, if it's better if it's the will of God, uh, if the will of God uh, be so, that you suffer for doing well than for doing evil. Now, this is what Peter had said previously uh, back in verse 14. And now he comes back to it. So he says, you know, look, if you're going to suffer, then, you know, if you suffer for righteousness, first be happy. But then he kind of adds this bit about, but make sure you've got an answer. Make sure you've got a reason to give. And it's almost as if he's saying, but, you know, if you are going to suffer, make it worthwhile. Make it, make, put the reason in there. If people are going to persecute them, in a sense, give them something to latch on to. Let it, let it be your conversation that you can engage in, that they'll do a lifestyle that they comment on, rather than just accusing you because you go to church. Actually use it as an opportunity to witness. And then, by the way, if they do persecute you, great, because you've got the opportunity to witness. You know, it is of paramount importance to realise that it is our justified hurts that are the most dangerous in developing into that root of bitterness that can so easily defile us. Hebrews 12 uh, verse 15 is a good reminder of this. You know, we need to be so careful because, you know, sometimes we are justified in wanting revenge, wanting to get even. But as we've seen already, we've commented on this, you know, those who live under the law and try and get what they're due, well, they'll be judged under the law. And we're told that we don't want to be judged under the law because we couldn't stand. We need to be judged by grace, by God's goodness, his riches and so on. And that's what we need to show to others. Again, also remember uh, the cross. Okay, and in verse 18 to 22, Peter is going to go on and illustrate the principle that he's laying down here using our perfect example, Jesus Christ. This is what he's going to go on to. We'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, next week. And verse 18 is actually going to follow. It's one of the shortest and simplest, and yet probably one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross. So that's something read ahead. We'll look forward to that next week. But I just want to just very quickly in closing. And finally, brethren, okay, uh, just go through apologetics. What is apologetics? You may have heard the word and so on, and we're clearly told here in verse 15 that we should be ready to give an answer, okay, to every man that asks a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Well, the word apologetics, it comes from a Greek term. It's actually two root words, and it means to speak away. That's what the word actually means. Historically, Plato, one of the Greek um, philosophers, and his famous Apology, recorded the defence of Socrates. So he wrote this document, this book, uh, which was literally a defence of Socrates. If you know Socrates, again, a Greek philosopher previous to Plato, had charges brought against him about 399 BC, before Jesus, about 400 years before Christ. Okay, so these charges were brought across against Socrates, and Plato then writes his book, a defence, as it were, of Socrates' position. And so the term becomes to be used then as a speech made by a defendant. That's why this word exists, if you care for that at all. But uh, apologetics says, has come to mean any reasoned or structured response to critics, detractors, antagonists, or skeptics. So that is why we have this term, we use the word apologetics, particularly in regards to uh, our conversation as Christians with those in the world. 
So from a Christian perspective, let's try and summarise it. Uh, It's the marshalling together evidence into a structure that will demonstrate in a clear, forceful and yet sensitive way the credibility and reasonableness of the Christian faith. Okay, so that's what we're we're trying to do when we engage in apologetics. It's simply bringing evidence together, we're putting it into a structure, and we try to demonstrate to whoever we're speaking to in a clear, forceful, and yet sensitive way, as we've been told to do, the credibility and the reasonableness of the Christian faith. The world would look on on the outside and they'll tell us all oh, the Christianity is nonsense. I don't. Why would you want to believe that? And yet, what we're trying to do through apologetics is show people actually it's very reasonable. And this is what we'll talk about briefly. My definition is this. Apologetics is the art of causing people to think. Now, my contention is that most of the people today in today's world don't tend to think very much. We have all our thinking done for us. We have an advertising, a marketing machine in the world that is continually throwing out ideas and thoughts into our head of what we should think, how we should look, how we should dress, how our home should be, what defines success, all these things. Okay, so people don't have to think anymore. We have a, a, an amusement industry. A muse simply means not to think. When you prefix a word with a, it means not. Okay, an atheist doesn't believe in God. It believes there's no God. Okay, so a muse means not to think. Muse meaning to think. And so amusement, and we have so much amusement today with TV and so many other distractions. People are encouraged not to think. So my contention is that people don't reject Christianity because of the lack of evidence but because they've been led to believe that no evidence exists. And then they all follow, like lemmings, down that road, thinking, well, there's no evidence, or the Bible's not true, there's contradictions in the Bible, or it's changed so many times. Nonsense. So let's just have a couple of moments just to comment on these things. So, I mean, people equate belief with emotion and not with facts, but that's not true. Some of you have seen the film God's Not Dead 2. There's a quote in it, um by this chap J. Warner Wallace who uh, wrote this book Cold Case Detective uh, author of uh, Cold Case Christianity and he said I'm not a Christian today because I was raised that way or because it satisfies some need or accomplishes some goal. I am simply a Christian because it is evidentially true I love that statement not a Christian because I was told to be so by my parents or because it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. I'm a Christian because it's true. And this is what we need to try and communicate to the world. Now, I encourage you to try and think about how you can use some of these things we're going to look at briefly in conversations with other people. Okay, the very first thing Jesus did when he appeared to the disciples after being raised from the dead, when he appears in the upper room, was to provide empirical proof, evidence. Jesus says, Touch me and see, handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. He didn't just say, oh, I'll take it on faith, guys. No, he says, look, here is the evidence so that they will be convinced. Now, with apologetics, there's effectively three main branches. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but one of them is a defense against criticism. Those who criticize Christianity, we need to have a defense to what they say. There's a counter defense that gives logical and credible reasons for believing. Okay, the really the hope that we have in us. Why do we believe? And then thirdly, this refutation, refuting the world's view of 
how everything is as it is and, and compo- opposing that with the biblical view of the way things are as they are. That's actually very easy to do. Certainly on a, on a introductory level, you know, and it does require specific knowledge of others' beliefs in order to dismantle them, to show them why their particular worldview doesn't stand, doesn't stack up, is not really logical, is not really credible. Okay, whereas what we believe as Christians is logical, is historic, is based on fact. So let me just just give you a couple of heads up of what apologetics is not, and this is really important just to understand. Apologetics is not evangelism let me make that point again apologetics is not evangelism and don't confuse the idea of defending the faith with preaching the gospel they're two different things both have their place but they are not the same thing apologetics is giving an answer it's really why you believe what you believe evangelism is proclamation of the gospel to someone else Evangelism is listed in Ephesians 4.11 as one of the ministry gifts. As with all gifts, it is of the Lord. It's given by God, enabled through God. All right. Whereas apologetics tends to be an intellectual activity. It's meeting objections, providing evidence, building a framework for thought. And evangelism is more concerned with the will and with the spirit. Okay, now both of them have their place, of course, and we need to, of course, preach the gospel. We're commanded to preach the gospel. It's through the preaching, the foolishness of preaching, that people are saved. Okay, and yet there is a place, of course, for apologetics, where we have opportunity for those that are willing to listen to explain the hope that we have and the reason for it. See, you can never convince someone to become a Christian. Let me make it really clear. You are never going to argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. You're never going to come up with some killer conversation as somebody's going to go, oh, wow, you're so clever. I never really thought about that. I need to be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. What apologetics can do is remove obstacles, but it will never ultimately change the heart. Okay, and that, of course, is a work of grace alone. So let's not confuse the two. In John fifteen twenty, Jesus himself said, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, uh, they will keep yours also. Jesus making it really clear that actually the world is not going to listen to us. We should expect that. So don't go out there expecting to have an argument or conversation and a good apologetic argument with someone. And then they go, oh, wow, no, the world ultimately is going to reject what we say. Okay, and they didn't listen to Jesus' words. We don't expect them to listen to ours. So let's just, just get our, uh, our expectations clear. And walking away is not an admission of defeat. All right, there's a bigger picture here. We'll talk about more in a moment. Uh, apologetics, though, does become a lonely and demoralizing undertaking if we misunderstand its role. We need to be very careful that we can have the best arguments in the world and see very little fruit from it. And I'll give you a scripture example of that in a minute. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, though, uh, we find there, Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but notice that God gave the increase. Yeah, we've got to keep before us that the work of salvation is entirely God's domain. Okay, so we can come up with all the arguments, all the reasons, all the facts, all the charts and graphs and pictures or whatever we want to do. That will not convert somebody. That may help in the intellectual uh, side of things. It may make them inquisitive. But ultimately, that work of salvation is the work of God. Now, I'll read this to you from Acts chapter 17. We read, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, 
His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city given uh, was wholly given to idolatry. He walked around um, the the Acropolis. And you saw, you've seen it, of course, on the top of the big hill in Athens. This great uh, structure that was built there. A lot of the the parts of the, the uh, Elgin marbles are in the British Museum. Um, some of you may have seen them, and uh, of course the Greek want them back and so on. But you know, this is where he was walking around, and as he was walking around, there was all sorts of idols and so on. And it says, uh, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. Notice what Paul did here. He disputed daily. Verse 18. And then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics, these are kind of different schools of the the Greeks, uh, the philosophers, they encountered him. These are some of the brightest people of their time. They used to sit there and debate all these things and these ideas and theories. and, And some said, what will this babbler say? In other words, okay, let, let, let's hear what he's got to say. Um, uh, other, uh, other some, he seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Oropagus, that's Mars Hill, which is just outside this place in, in Athens. Some of you may have been there. Saying, uh, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what things uh, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. So Paul uses what they had and makes a good logical reason argument now for this. And he says, God that made the world, he starts with creation. That God is a creator. This world didn't come about by random chance. Evolution's nonsense. The Greeks had their own evolutionary theories even at that time. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Seeing he gives life to all, or so give it to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations uh, of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and determine the times before appointed and the bounds of their inhabitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel uh, after him, to find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So Paul presents this uh, reasoned logical argument. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. You see, what Paul does is look at what they've been worshipping and saying, come on, think about this, guys. You made this. This was made out of silver or stone or gold. It's not real. It can't really be a God. He says the real God isn't like that. And then he says, and the times of this ignorance, God winked at or overlooked, allowed you to get on with that for now, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, God has now revealed himself. There is no excuse for not knowing who he is, is really where Paul takes this. Uh, Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul started to get some of them to think. Now, the limit of apologetics, okay, so... The good arguments that Paul presents on Mars Hill, he soon realises the distinction between apologetics and evangelism. All right, and we're going to see that. 
Uh, he says, when he gets to Corinth, which is his next trip, he left, leaves Athens, goes down to Corinth. When he gets to there, later in his letter, he writes to them and says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul says, when I came, I didn't come and give you lots of reasoned arguments as to why you should believe in Jesus Christ. I didn't come and give you lots of facts and figures and everything to convince you. Verse 2 says, for I determined to know uh, to, not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Apologetics does not take away the need for the gospel. This is really, really clear. It's a valuable tool that can be used to great effect. It does not take away the need for the gospel and the simple preaching of the cross. It seems so absurd to us that simply preaching about Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who was buried, who rose again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that is the gospel. It seems strange to our understanding that that can actually convince an unbeliever. But that is what the Bible says it does. Okay, And when Paul says he got to Corinth, uh, he doesn't try and uh, overwhelm them with intellect and with wisdom and so on. He simply preaches the gospel to them. And he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So with apologetics, all we can really hope to achieve with an unbeliever is to remove the barriers to faith. Apologetics does not produce faith as such, but rather it prepares a person to believe by faith. Okay, so again, it just removes some of the obstacles, the intellectual obstacles that might prevent somebody from looking. And it then serves to validate our faith once we believe. Apologetics is actually really good for believers to to, uh, give us that assurance, that knowledge that what we believe really is true. See, apologetics is really simply about getting people to think. Romans 12.3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, this word soberly, uh, for all you know in the, uh, the Greek here, means to exercise the mind. Now, of course, the world would tell us as believers that we don't tend to think. That, you know, we're, we're foolish for our position. The Bible actually says the difference. It says that as Christians, we should think soberly. We should exercise the mind. Okay, this is very interesting. It means with intent is the idea here as well. And again, that God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. Faith, by the way, is interesting. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. That's what people tend to think it is. It's not. Faith is the result of deductive logic. Okay, who believes the sun is going to rise in the morning? Well, you're believing that on the basis of faith, but you've got good reason to believe it because we've got history, which we can refer to where we've seen every day the sun rise the next day. It's a logical deduction and we have faith that's going to be the case. Who would sit on a a one-legged chair? Well, very few people because you're likely to fall off of it. But you know a chair with four legs, you're going to sit on it without questioning it because you've got faith. You've sat on many chairs before. You see, you make a faith choice based upon the evidence that you've amassed so far. Who drives a car amongst us? Probably a number of us drive cars. Well, you know, when you drive a car, you're putting your faith in the power of a painted white line and the power that that line exerts over the mind and the will of an oncoming driver. There's nothing to stop that driver coming down the road, the side of the road that you're driving, except a white line. And so we put our faith in that white line that it's got the power over the mind of some other person to keep them on their side and us on our side. You see, we all employ empirical data that we've collected to help us make faith choices. So faith is not this blind leap in the dark. 
Let me ask you what you know and how do you know what you know? This is a study referred to as epistemology. Okay, It's a study of knowledge and its scope and its limits. What's the basis that you have for what you believe? This is a good question to ask any unbeliever. Why do you believe what you believe? And what's the foundation for it? What's the basis? You see, the majority of knowledge is actually faith-based. Okay, It's the things that you've not been able to personally verify. You, you've learned all sorts of things. I mean, other than, of course, things in maths, which you, you can actually empirically test and verify yourself, and certain scientific things you do at school. But a lot of the things that you know that have accumulated through life, you know because you've heard it from somebody else. You've not personally verified some of these things. You've accepted somebody else's statement or their belief. Now, it starts, of course, with our parents who teach us things, and we just accept those things. And then it goes on to our school teachers, and we accept what they say. And then in further education. And then, of course, the media influences us very much. And as we grow older, we become more discerning. And sometimes we question a lot of the things the media say with good reason. But the Bible exhorts us to think soberly in regard to our faith choices. So whom or what do we trust? Do you believe the Bible's true? And if not, what is your foundation? Your own opinion? Well, that's a very dangerous ground to be building on. Or the opinion of others? Well, that's even worse. Now, Peter says, and we've seen this already, uh, sorry, we've spoken about this, and we'll look at this when we get to Second Peter, that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. We didn't make this stuff up, is what Peter says, when we may know unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Peter says, but we're eyewitnesses. See, the Bible is based on empirical evidence, things that were seen, that were verified, that have been passed down to us, not just hearsay. If you go to Luke's gospel, I'm not going to read through these scriptures, they'll be in the slides if you want to look at them later. But you see that Luke based his gospel on eyewitness accounts. Okay, what's the biblical mandate? Well, apologetics from a Christian perspective is not the domain solely of the scholar. Okay, so we need to understand this is something for all of us. It's a mandate for all who profess to follow Christ. It's used, the word is used eight times in the New Testament. And these are the references. Just very briefly, I'll give you how they're used. And those three you can see there in Acts, Corinthians and Timothy. It's making a reasoned defense. It's refuting accusations of spiritual misconduct to both the religious leaders and those outside the church. A defense of our faith. In Acts 25, Paul uses it there and questions his accusers and seeks to give a defense. This is when Paul is uh, before Felix and so on in the book of Acts. In 2 Corinthians 7, on that occasion, the word is used uh, in the, the term of uh, Paul trying to vindicate himself, clearing his name. And all these things are applicable. We see examples in the New Testament of this. In Philippians, twice, Paul uses the term to refer to proclamation of the gospel in terms of setting forth his argument, what he's trying to convey. But we also need to remember that there is a problem that we're challenged by when we come into this realm of apologetics and trying to get people to think. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, If our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. All right, so we're told that Satan has actually blinded the intellectual capacity of the people in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised that many people reject what we believe. It's not rejection from a logical basis. It's rejection purely because Satan has twisted their heart and mind to the point where they believe it's not true. In 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 3-5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
Now, there's some Christians have gone off on all tangents with this whole idea of what is a stronghold. But it's very clear. It's the things that have been built up in our mind. In the next verse, it says that we are to cast down imaginations. That's in our mind, our thinking. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So everything that the world has fed into our mind, our understanding, and for non-believers, all the things they picked up that speaks against the knowledge of God. We are to bring those things into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, part of our role as as believers in this spiritual warfare is to bring down these arguments, these imaginations, these thoughts that the world has got so comfortable with and show them that what we believe is logically sound. We need to be prepared to question the questions. When we are talking to people, they will challenge us and they'll use all sorts of logical fallacies to try and make their own point. Now, I'm not going to go through these, but I'm going to leave them in the notes because if you want to come back and look at them at your leisure, you're more welcome to do so. It might be helpful and instructive to you. But there's a number of different types of arguments that you'll find that people will try and discredit what you say, undermining your arguments by throwing things in. Now, there's a whole bunch of these you can see here. Uh, and these, again, are typical things that people will try and say. They'll throw in you know, a, a totally different question. They'll, lead you, they'll, they'll set up kind of a straw man argument and so on. Um, so again I'll leave them in the notes just so you've got them if you want to look back at them Um, but for the sake of time I'm not going to go through each of these this morning okay so um, just just to conclude there's three main and different approaches for apologetics one is the classical approach now this has typically been used throughout church history Uh, it's probably the most long-standing way of of presenting these things and it's sometimes drawn from what's referred to as the a-team which was augustine anselm and thomas aquinas uh, early uh, characters in the christian church Uh, and it locks into this kind of philosophical method to demonstrate the rationality of the christian faith But right from the start, Christianity was never just a, well, we think we believe it and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy. No, there was a logical, rational basis. And that's uh, the the classical approach of presenting these things. It seeks to identify the logical failings and mistakes and the faulty assumptions that the critics have. And some of those things are just skipped over. Uh, I'll give you more insight into that. And really, it's using reason to build an intellectual case. Now, C.S. Lewis, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, noted that he was not a believer because it made him happy, but because it was true. Very similar to that quote we read earlier. And today, people like John Lennox, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, is very much a champion of this kind of approach. Now, this is broken down into five typical proofs. I'm sure some of you at school will remember this, the cosmological argument, very simply that the world and universe exist. They must have had an origin. Things couldn't create themselves. You know, even if you give it billions of years, nothing can't become everything. We've made that very clear over studies we've done. You know, matter couldn't have been around forever and all sorts of things. So that's one of the arguments that's put forward, the cosmological argument. Another one, the teleological argument. And that's simply the idea that we see design everywhere. Recently, we had a a little um, butterfly thing we spoke about. The girls had uh, with this lovely little kind of cage where the, we saw the caterpillars go into their chrysalis and come out as butterflies. And you look at the, the symmetry, the design in those things, the way they come out and they're able to fly. It's just incredible, just alone. But all through nature, we see amazing design. And design doesn't happen by random chance. Okay, And we see it even in DNA and all these things that we look at in the world. So there's a great argument there that there has to be a designer. 
Another argument that's used is the moral argument. Man has an inbuilt sense of right and wrong, and this is a great conversation to have with people. You know, why do people get upset about things like justice if we are purely the result of biological chemical evolution? It doesn't make sense. You know, love, hatred, justice, righteousness, those are all things outside of the physical, and yet every human being has a capacity for those things. And it just leads us to the concept that we have a moral creator. C.S. Lewis made the quote once. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? What he's saying is the fact that I was saying it was unjust... Actually, I must therefore have some standard, some knowledge of what just is. Where does that come from? The anthropological argument, okay, is that man has his inbuilt sense of a higher power. In all cultures around the world, we have this kind of concept of a deity, a god, whatever. Where does that come from? How do we develop that idea of simply just on this evolutionary journey? It doesn't make any sense from that perspective. Uh, and so on uh, and then the last of the classical approaches what is referred to as the ontological argument you know and if that's simply if we can conceive of an infinite or perfect being and yet we recognize that we ourselves are imperfect and finite the idea of an infinite being must have come from him rather than from us and and so on so these are some of the arguments he used the last two of these the presuppositional approach is a kind of uh, argument that simply says well god exists He's revealed himself through his word. And of course, then it opens up the issue of personal accountability. Now, some people don't like that because you're making an an assumption that actually God does exist. Um, And you you really appeal to the kind of morality element with people. But it's another argument. And it removes the traditional objections of their their weight and validity. A lot of people get caught up in those first lot of arguments and so on. Uh, Pascal's wager falls into that category. I'm sure you may have come across that before. It's the idea that I can live my life as a good person and not believe in God. Um, And if there is no God, when I die, I haven't lost anything. If I'm a bad person and there is no God, well, then I've not lost anything. But if there is a God, if I live as a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, when I die, I don't lose anything. In fact, I gain everything. But if there is a God and I go through life and I don't believe in that God, then I'm going to stand judgment. Okay, so it's a simple argument that's often used. Uh, and, and truthfully, that was one of my own personal sake. That was one of the, the challenges in my own heart and mind that made me think there has to be a God. And, and it's just too much of a gamble to go through life thinking, well, hope there's not. Maybe there's not. I'll just turn my eyes the other way and, and just pretend there's not. It's just, it's just a, such a foolish position to take because you, 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 can't lose, you, can't, you can't win in that position. So... Um, uh, a theologian, Kyle Dillon, said this. He said, I tend to sympathize more with the presuppositionalists. Uh, experience has taught me that among postmoderns, kind of people we're living with, at least, explore, uh, so exposing bias gets more traction than using cosmological arguments. So all of these things are valid, and you might find things here that you can take and use in conversations. But it comes back to the question, that, what is the basis for what you believe? 
Okay, and that, that's where we talked about a moment ago. That that argument is particularly that type of thing. So the third one is evidentialist approach. I like this personally. Uh, really, from the 18th century, this started to come on. There was a lot of critics attacking the Bible and saying it's not true, it wasn't authentic, it wasn't written when it was said it was written, and so on. You know, uh, and what we find is, and actually, um, with the origin of the species, there's a lot of people started to come on board saying, well, the Bible must be wrong, and there must be have millions of years, and so on. Um, and of course, the the discovery of codex Sinaiticus uh, led to this tidal wave of new translations, all gradually undermining the authority of the Bible and so on. Well, this idea, people like Josh McDowell have really been great champions, showing that we have evidence for that which we believe. And of course, his classic work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, really, everybody should get a copy of that and read it. It's really, really good. You know, and the approach often pulls for a wide range of fields to provide evidence from historical, geographical, biological, mathematical, prophetical perspectives showing that the Bible is true. And it's a great argument to, to have with people when we can show them the historical evidence that we have. Now, I said there was three. There is kind of one others uh, that I'm not. I don't tend to use uh, focus on but uh, this uh fittiest approach and uh, it's defined as a doctrine that knowledge depends upon faith and revelation and really it's the idea that really uh, unless you believe you're not going to see well there's actually some truth in that because for people in the world they're not really going to understand the things of god because the natural mind can't understand the things of the spirit of god because they're foolishness to him they're spiritually discerned so unless you believe you're not really going to understand so there is an element of this that's true now a lot of information. Let me just read these verses again. The purpose of going through all of that is just to encourage you to have a reason for the hope that is in you. What I'd like to do once we finish going through First Peter is maybe just have a few weeks before we go into Second Peter, again, if the Lord tarries, just to go through and to give you some of the evidences and some of the reasons that we know that what we believe is true. And there are so many. We did a study on Tuesday evening for the Fellowship in Milton Keynes, just looking through the evidence that we have for the Bible and for Christianity being true, that showing that it really is historically valid and factual and so on. Uh, and again, that we, these things, you know, we're, we're told again, that we should have this good conscience. That if people in the world accuse us, hey, hey, look, we should, number one, have a reason for the hope in us, but there shouldn't be anything that they can accuse us of. Because it is better, if it's the will of God, that we suffer for well-doing than for evil. Let's leave it there. Can I just encourage you next time to read verse 18 to 22. Very interesting portion as we come to the end of this chapter. Uh, we'll look at that next time. Let's uh, bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just thank you this morning for this opportunity to study your word. Father, thank you for the lessons you're teaching us. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we should love each other. We should have compassion for each other. The Lord, we should learn to submit to each other. Father, help us to, to take these uh, admonishments from Peter, Lord, that we should have uh, evidence. We should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And Lord, that hope should be tangible to other people. So Lord, stir our hearts. Help us to grow in knowledge and in grace. Lord, help us to have opportunity to express that faith to others those that we work with those that we meet our family members to have the boldness lord to speak to them knowing that what we believe is true the lord this isn't some as peter says cunningly devised fable lord we just thank you for these things just encourage us stir our hearts set us on fire for you we ask in jesus name amen <laughs>